Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another edition of the Locked on NBA podcast. David Locke with you. Thanks very much for subscribing to the Locked on NBA podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Locked on Sports and Facebook at Locked on Sports and David Locke. Please do follow those things and thanks for subscribing and leaving the comments. Kevin Pelton, who you can follow on Twitter today. At K Pelton rejoins us, ESPN insider, uh, for the podcast. We're in Portland, about to head over to the Utah Jazz Portland Trailblazers game. Just finished watching the Cleveland Oklahoma City blowout and watch Anthony Davis on League Pass go for 50 plus. We'll touch on some of those things, plus trade deadline, plus we'll look at some numbers things with plus minus the Hacka player concept in the NBA right now. Uh, we'll look at all these things in our upcoming conversations. Let's start with what we just watched. Uh, uh, recency bias is one of all of our favorite things to do, uh, but this one seems more significant right now. There seem to be four, maybe, sorry, Toronto, maybe five title contending teams, two of them matched up. In Oklahoma City, Cleveland blows them out. So the question is, uh, if you had to decide one way or the other on this one, would you say this is more of a statement that Cleveland under Tyrone Lue is a different team or that Oklahoma City actually might have something to worry about? I guess I would say that it pro- this specific performance probably says more about Cleveland to be able to go out on the road and do this. And, you know, very interesting for them to be so successful without Kyrie Irving in the lineup. I, I know you were taking note of that. But the, what really seemed to happen is that put Kevin Love in his place as the second scorer. LeBron running the show offensively with the ball in his hands primarily, and everything really fit together well around that. I mean, I think the one concern you would have is LeBron playing point guard, do you have enough wings to make it work? But they were able to do it here. From Oklahoma City's perspective, I mean, honestly, I've always considered them to be a level below the Oklahoma City, Golden State, San Antonio tier of teams. Uh, going, dating back to last summer, because I just don't think they have the role players to match those teams to go around their stars. And, you know, getting Randy Foy at the trade deadline uh, is, is decent a deal as that was, did not answer that concern. Let's go back to Cleveland for a second. So for those of you who have listened to the Locked on NBA podcast previously, we had uh, two scouts on their NBA scouts that travel around the prepare reports for teams, and they come on our show anonymously. And in, in the case of both of them, we talked about the idea that Kyrie Irving actually is what the, dispa- the kind of unbalances Cleveland, that it's not Kevin Love. One of the scouts particularly agreed with that and says that he sees it obviously when he watches him that Kyrie still wants to be the man, that he's not even willing to relinquish being the man to LeBron. Uh, last year in the finals, I've always felt that they were as good – the way they were able to play against the Warriors without Kyrie actually was beneficial to them. So can, you know, Kyrie gets healthy, Kyrie, LeBron, Love, is there anything they learned today that Kyrie can step into and build off of that he should be able to see from the outside? Well, I mean, I think there's a few interesting things at play here. First off, you know, they were pretty good in the finals in game one with Kyrie in the lineup. They did take that game to overtime, which is where he got injured. So, you know, they had some success with that with that partnership. And any time that Irving, Love, and LeBron have been on the court together, Cleveland has been a good, a very good team. 
just our standards for what a good team is have shifted a little bit this year because of the fact that Golden State and San Antonio are doing historic things over in the Western Conference. But yeah, I think it's uh, the the other I think I'd bring up here is there was a lot of talk before David Black got fired about after that loss to Golden State where earlier in that week for Cleveland before Black got fired, Love had two good games after that. And there was some talk about, oh, hey, were there, were there some adjustments by Blatt to do things differently with Love? And the conclusion after that was no, it was actually Kyrie Irving that was initiating getting Love involved in the pick and roll more. So I, I think there are elements. It's just any time you have three guys who are so effective as scorers with the ball in their hands, it's going to be a little bit difficult to balance all of those. I think what makes it potentially workable for Cleveland is that you know, both Irving and uh, Love are guys who also can be effective without the ball in a way that, say, Dwayne Wade maybe could not in Miami. It's interesting to watch. From an Oklahoma City standpoint, you say you think that they're a step below. I've, the one thing that's been interesting to me all year about Oklahoma City, I'm really overgeneralizing here, but I actually think it's pretty accurate, is th- their pattern of play seems to be to get outplayed for about 40 minutes and then for eight minutes they come from behind to win games. Uh, is there anything wrong with that? Like, does that show you any weakness and, and does that build off of this? I've been kind of watching them and saying, well, can you criticize a team that they should have been up by more with eight minutes left, yet they win the game? I'm not sure that's a fair criticism, but it doesn't feel like they're coming out and inserting their will on teams throughout a game. Well, here's where I think that's fair is one of the great things about what Golden State is doing and putting teams away after three quarters so frequently is that they're getting their guys a lot of rest. Oklahoma City isn't able to do that same thing as regularly with Westbrook and Durant. Now, I think a lot of the effect that we're seeing is, you know, maybe Westbrook and Durant are playing B-level games for those first 40 minutes. But the real reason they're behind is it's because those guys are on the court for 32 minutes and it's the eight minutes that they're on the bench where they're getting outscored by six points. They're getting outscored by eight or ten some nights. And that's where they're falling behind. And that's where it still seems the obvious logical solution. If you have two guys who are extraordinarily off the charts brilliant at creating their own shot even though they can be great terrific together you should try to make sure that you have one of them on the court at all times as we've said going back to the scott brooks era you mentioned scott brooks let me let me just go to a question here scott brooks got criticized immensely monty williams and obviously our thoughts are with the williams uh family right now with all all they're going through uh had the same comment about him. And yet, I don't remember Oklahoma City having many nights like this. I don't remember New Orleans. You know, New Orleans, you had the interesting comments on our previous podcast was episode one, if anybody wants to go back to hear it, about how Monty Williams really made coach guys up a little bit. Are we over that? I, I think we've talked about this as well. You, you go to Twitter and, gosh, people are just arguing about every call imaginable when win probability is like 3% on games. Is there something just simply about playing hard that is not talked about enough with what coaching in this league is that we all analyze coaching as the X's and O's and this playing time and this and that and Kevin Love elbow touches when it really comes down to getting – in an impossible 82-game schedule to give your guys, to give you effort every night. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's kind of hard to judge that, you know, from the outside because of the fact that, first off, we assume that effort is the default setting and that if it's not there, that it's something wrong with the it's players. It's really not, by the way. Right, and and effort is a skill is another important thing. Like, this also gets to, you know, player, player uh, evaluation uh, on top of that. Let me clarify something when I say it's not. 
It's not because the players are dogs or they're not efforting. It's because you're playing 82 games. Because most of these teams right now in the final stretch of the season are playing 30 games in 54 days or something insane. And so it's not the default setting at that point. And frankly, for most of us in everything we do in life, we're going to take the avenue of least resistance until we have to do something else. And that's the default setting when you're playing this many games at this accelerated a rate is what is the the – least route of least resistance before I have to go to it. Maybe it's what we were talking about with Oklahoma City a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, finish your thought. I just wanted to make sure I clarify. Well, and then you also get into the question of, is it a good thing to be giving all out effort for 82 games a night for 48 minutes? I mean, that's what Tom Thibodeau got out of his team, but that came with a certain cost, potentially, I think, in the playoffs in terms of guys getting worn out. So, you know, it's a it's a subtle thing. It, it, there's there's arguments to this in both directions. But, yeah, I think the other aspect of it is, you know, you don't necessarily see those elements of coaching. And, you know, there, uh, there's a theory from Danny Kahneman and thinking fast or slow, thinking fast and slow, I should say. Uh, what you see is all there is. So we don't we don't admit the existence of data that we can't see ourselves. We think that that's that the information that we have is all the information that there is, even if we know that there's objectively that there's this other information that's out there. So seeing guys coaching in front of us is more, we value it more than something they do behind the scenes that we don't see. We are getting ready to head over to the uh, Moda Center Rose Garden for the Blazers and the Jazz. I was watching the Blazers-Warriors game, first half, one of the most entertaining, like if you want an entertaining hour-long sitcom, or actually probably 40 minutes long, just watch the first half of that game. I mean, it was just great. And Jim Barnett, the Warriors announcer, made an, a great comment, like every now and then there's these nuggets, and he said, we're watching two happy teams. Uh, you look at the Blazers roster and really, you know, Ed Davis is there for offensive rebounds and Plumlee's there to set picks and throw passes. And everyone's got their kind of assigned role. And a lot of them are on second chances or in case of Davis, third chances with teams and they're happy to have them. And it all it's all gelling. The Warriors are obviously a happy team. Who are the happy teams in your mind? And, and what makes a happy? Let's start out with that. Let's back up first. What makes a happy team in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting topic because of the fact that there's it, the difficulty of separating the chicken and egg question. You know, which way, which way does the causation run? Are you a happy team because of the fact that you're successful? Or are you a successful team because of the fact that you're happy? But I think part of it comes down to expectations. And I think we're seeing that it's actually easier to see on the unhappy side because it's probably easier to pick out the unhappy teams in the league right now than it is to pick out the happy teams. The Warriors, again, have thrown off everybody's calibration. Like Cleveland in a normal year, winning the Eastern Conference, had some injuries, fought through them. They're coming along just fine. But there's this looming Warriors factor out there that's hanging over everything that, hey, we're maybe not as good as them. And that's created, that's that's why David Black got, I mean, and, obviously I mean, it's not the Warriors. They're an unhappy team. They've had more players meetings. LeBron's stress level has been obvious in his interviews. That's an unhappy team. Yeah. And because of the fact that it's nothing internally that you can control, it's this outside external factor that affects your happiness. So expectations, I think, are a big part of it. Portland is a team that came into this year. You know, everyone was saying they're going to be one of the five worst teams in the league. They're going to be fighting for lottery position given the four starters that they lost. And internally, I think I don't think that they bought into that. But it's given them the ability to kind of 
feed into that no one nobody believes in us mentality and kind of coalesce that way. And yeah, I, I think that you know whether it was intentional by Neil Olshay or not, the roster has been constructed really well in terms of guys being happy with their roles. Uh, you mentioned the guys on their second and third chances. You've also got a lot of guys who have been developed in Portland who are getting their first real chance. You know, C.J. McCollum didn't get a chance to start before this year. Alan Crabb didn't get a chance to play it before this year. So Lillard is really the only guy that's in a familiar role to him on this team, and he's obviously very happy with that role. Two players that are pro- two teams that are probably in an unhappy uh, position would be Houston and Sacramento. Both of them have. Uh, marquee superstars that put up massive numbers and James Harden and DeMarcus Cousins. But I also think you could make a pretty strong argument that the unhappiness derives out of the two of them. Yeah, I mean, that's more or less the argument that I made with Harden before the trade deadline when saying that, you know, trading Dwight Howard wouldn't solve Houston's problems, that, that they actually would have to trade Harden to solve a lot of those. I mean, I think that was more focused in the on the fact that, you know, they were 27th in the league in defenses at the All-Star break and that Harden's lack of effort and having your la- your superstar not giving effort at that end kind of uh, enables everyone else to have that same built-in excuse of, well, he's not doing it, so why do I have to put in effort at the defensive end? Uh, It's a tricky situation because of the fact that we know talent wins in this league. So to give up guys that are that talented, you're taking a huge risk. I mean, that's what Daryl Morey spent years accumulating the assets famously to get in position to trade for James Harden. And now the the idea is, oh, you should trade him like that. That obviously sounds blasphemous. I understand that it was it sounded blasphemous when I said it. But at the same time, if they're not help. And I think this is less true with Boogie this year. Uh, because, you know, the way the team has played with him on the court and when he's healthy, those are stronger indicators in his favor than they are in Harden's case. But if they're not actually helping you win the team, win like superstars, are they in fact superstars just based on their individual production? Well, on the boogie end, he, he's so moody and the team emulates that moodiness. I think there's got to be some responsibility that parlays. And he's got to be difficult to play with. Just watching from 30,000 feet. That's got to be hard to play with. I understand the talent's amazing, but that's got to be hard to play with. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it seems like it's fun necessarily. It's fun when the things are going well, but anytime things aren't going well, it becomes not fun in a hurry. There's maybe a mini version of that with Chris Paul. Elaborate on that. I mean, he's such a perfectionist that if things are going well, again, it's great because of the fact that there's nobody better at setting up his teammates, and he's such an amazingly intelligent player. But you know, if something gets off, then it gets off in a bad way. And that clearly is an unhappy team, not because of the Blake Griffin fight, but with the whole DeAndre Jordan offseason tipped off how unhappy a team, you know, in many ways that that was. Who are happy teams? What would you say in the Jim Barnett end of things that are happy teams? Uh, Toronto is one that stands out. Again, exceeding expectations. You know, the the storyline there was, you know, the disappointment of last year's uh, first round loss and the way they ended the season. And for them to be coming out and establishing themselves a solid second in the Eastern Conference, and for you know Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan to have kind of found a way to work together as, as star players, much like Lillard and McCollum, I would say, in Portland, and then everybody else kind of knows their roles around them, that seems like a team that's pretty happy. Are you, you mentioned the causation. Can you think of any teams that are not currently headed toward the playoffs that are still happy teams? Huh. Would Denver count? Yeah, that's, that was a team that came to mind for me. <laughs> I mean, Minnesota has had some happy moments. You know, there's there's some frustration. That article about Sam Mitchell, that is not a happy team. Well, yeah. There's happy moments, I think, for them. Most For the most part, though, it's hard to do it when you're not winning. In the Eastern Conference, I wonder if Detroit 
I mean, you think about Detroit or Charlotte or Washington certainly has not been a happy team no. uh, this season. I wonder if, if there's any of those that fall into this. I think Dallas is a happy team. Uh, you know, they, they've, they're muddling around at 29 and 27 right now, but everything I hear about that group and how they play and, and where they are and that strike and you watch them play, you can see it. You can see a happy team on the floor. I mean, it becomes, you know, it's like any endeavor in life. You're going to work harder if you like the people around you and be more willing to sacrifice and share with them. I mean, I I think that's no different than any other endeavor that involves a team. Right. So this is uh, the obvious, I think, parlay. Or next question to this is you're an analytics guy predominantly. Um, Happy is such a kind of we're guessing and there's no number that we can put on this, this happy team metric. So how does it par? How do you see it? Like, can you see it in numbers? Can you see it analytically? If a if a group has been put together correctly as a as the Blazers, as you mentioned, seeing that roster seems to perfectly work together. I mean, probably not. Other than the fact that just the res- results exceed what you'd go, what you'd expect based on individual talent, and you know the projections, the uh, real plus minus projections that we had on ESPN were much higher on Portland than almost any conventional wisdom was about them. And so, you know, I touted them as a team that I thought was going to overperform the expectations this year, but I didn't see them playing as well as they are right now. Well, it's interesting. I had two teams in my pack ratings that were going to be better than they were supposed to be, and one is a happy team and one's an unhappy team. One was Portland, and the only problem I had, your metrics are better, is I just didn't have enough possessions, right? Like when I put them together trying to get everyone to 100 possessions, they still only had about 70 because none of their guys have been high-usage players, so you wonder how efficiency is going to work. Sacramento was a team that to me was put together and was going to be terrific, but it seems as though the internal stuff has not allowed that to come to meld together. And then you get into a very interesting question of whether or not, you know, were the numbers wrong or right, or was it the internal makeup that made them wrong? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of angles on that. Well, I want to challenge you on Sacramento because you've talked a lot about like their bench and how playoff caliber it is and the experience there. Are we sure Marco Bellinelli is a good player? Are we sure that he wasn't just a product of San Antonio's system? Because that's where the pack maybe struggles to to f- include that context. He's not been an efficient scorer basically any other time in his career, but when he's played for the Spurs. And generally, I don't uh, I don't have a big belief in that. I mean, Bellinelli definitely proves what you're saying, but big picture, I largely feel that a player moves from one spot to another, and more often than not, they use possessions with the same efficiency. Amir Johnson is almost exactly as efficient as he was in Toronto, I believe. Um, if you look, frankly, Isaiah Thomas is about exactly as efficient in Boston as he was in Sacramento. So I, Je- Al Jefferson has been the exact same player in every system, and he's played in dramatically different systems. Even Marvin Williams, who's evolved into different types of players, as I think about Charlotte, is, is equally efficient. You know, So I actually generally believe, except for in the circumstances where you're playing with one or two, and maybe Tim Duncan is, is still that guy, or maybe the whole San Antonio system. I think the largest mistakes are made in this league are when the team says, well, our system will correct those errors of that player there. I think that almost never happens. No, I do tend to agree with that. I mean, I think you you can... The pendulum can swing too far in either direction in terms of thinking that the system is everything and that the system is nothing. Like... Like, I get the, I am sympathetic to the argument that Kawhi Leonard's development has been facilitated by being in an amazing organization in San Antonio, but Kawhi Leonard was a really freaking good college player. And other than the shooting aspect, I think he would have been 
he would have done a lot of similar things anywhere he would have been drafted. So I think that's a case where the system is maybe getting too much credit. But when you've got someone who has a track record like Bellinelli that is very different from what he does, and I guess some guys are more concept- sensitive to that context than others, I think. There's one other. Gordon Dragic is another one of these. He had this one outlier year that everyone continues to try to get him back to. Everyone's talking about how in Miami he's not performing that great. I haven't really analyzed it, but my gut reaction on Dragic is that his numbers are pretty similar in Miami right now as what they were other than that third-team All-NBA year in Phoenix. And that that year was, I think, a bit of an outlier. But the last couple of years, there is strong evidence that he plays his best basketball when he's the only ball handler on the court and he's surrounded by shooters. So, but well, then that makes him not... Not what? That's a, that's a lot. That describes a lot of guys in this league. It's right. just well, that that, that, that makes the, it very, like and the people keep hearing. I keep hearing this in Miami. I got to figure out a way to figure him out. Well, if what you just said is the case, then that's not a guy Miami's going to win with because he's not good enough to be the primary ball handler without any other ball handlers. No, I don't agree with that. I think he is. Uh, first off, I've been waiting all weekend for someone to say to me in real life that Miami's played the last two games missing Dwayne Wade, so I could give them the line. I wouldn't say they've been missing him. Because Dwayne Wade is the problem in Miami. Wow. I mean, not the, I mean, problem is too strong here. It's, it sounds horrible when I say it that way. But when Dragic plays without Wade, Dragic is Dragic. When Dragic plays without, with Wade, he's just a guy standing in the corner who's not that good at shooting threes. That's, so he's been very good the last two games, and they've won their first two games since the All-Star break without Dwayne Wade. And if they don't have Bosch, it'll be hard to tell for the, as they try to figure this out. Yeah, which is kind of blown me away that they've played so well without Bosch because I thought that was going to be a much larger issue for them. But the the fact that Dragic is playing so well and then McRoberts stepping up that they've they've been able to win without him. I'm going to put an asterisk next to some of this conversation. Washington played the third game of a back to back to back for one of those two wins. Let's go. Uh, let's go West playoffs for a second. Um, it's really fascinating. You have this upstart team in Portland. Uh, I think you have a little bit of an upstart team in Utah. Most people kind of predicted them to be around this realm, but they're very young. They're the second youngest team in the league. You have Houston, who's this horrendous disappointment. You have Dallas, that is this veteran team that seems to be just like I call it Tarzaning. They're going from vine to vine, just hoping the next vine is still there. And you have Memphis, that's made this calculated risk that, hey, we're not going to make a playoff run. We're going to undo our roster, get some assets, but we're still going to be good enough to make the playoffs so we keep our draft pick. How do you see these five teams playing? playing out over the next 30 games, which really could be fabulous basketball. Yeah, I don't know. Is, is that what the answer you were looking for here? I mean, I, they're, they're all coming from such different directions. Uh, my, my feeling going into the All-Star break was that Utah had a really good shot at ending up fifth in the conference because I, I think that given the rosters that they, these teams have right now, they are the best of these teams. Now, they've also got some ground to make up, and the schedule isn't necessarily as favorable for them as it is for some other teams. So, you know, that's that's what might prevent them to, from doing that. But, you know, I, they have the most upside here. Well, they, I've analyzed this. They have 11 games in which, if you go to 538's win probability, are between 30 and 45 for them. So they're the uh, as of the and then some of that's how they've played this season and doesn't account for the fact they're completely healthy at this point I think and it has to do with travel but so they have eleven games and those are going to determine these games that 
between where their win probability right now is between 30 and 45 percent. So they should not win them or they should win three of or three or four of them. If they can win six, five, six or seven of them, then they make the playoffs. Yeah, because it's probably going to be a couple of games here or there. And it also is going to matter which games you win from a tiebreaker perspective that that win at Dallas right before the All-Star break could be crucial at the end of the year. All right, let's look at uh, Portland. Is there anything? They're obviously the surprise team in the league. We love to look at the best teams in the league and say, those are the teams that we should be emulating. Is there anything about what Portland's doing that should be sending a message to the league uh, about how they're playing? Well, you know, it's tough to say. I mean, I think one of the big takeaways from Portland is something that can't be duplicated or replicated because the moment is passed. And that's how well they managed free agency last year, you know, taking advantage of that situation before the cap went up dramatically to get guys like Alfaro Camino, Ed Davis locked in on these long-term contracts that at the moment, Aminu was the first guy that signed last summer and everyone like freaked out at the fact that, you know, this guy who had been playing for the minimum the year before was getting seven or 8 million a year or whatever the, the contract ended up being. Now you look at it in a year, the average starter salary is probably going to be around 15 million. And Aminu is, I think, a fairly average starter at small forward, and you're getting him for about half that. That's a huge, huge value. So that's probably the biggest takeaway. In terms of the -the on-the-court stuff, I mean, well, here's what I would say about Portland, is you and Bill Simmons, I think, are a couple of people who have said that, more or less, to paraphrase, teams are going are going to or are embarrassing themselves by trying to replicate the Golden State Warriors. And I, I understand I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, but I think that there are ways to learn from the Warriors without trying to duplicate the Warriors. And I think that Portland is maybe the foremost example of that. I've also highlighted Charlotte in terms of a team that played smaller, played a, shot a lot of threes. In Portland's case, you've got the two scoring guards in the backcourt, but maybe the most important and most overlooked element of similarity is uh, Mason Plumley is a playmaker out of the pick and roll is a big man. And that's a, a really valuable skill that I don't think most teams had. And, and none of us realized that Mason Plumley could do before this season. But that's also unlocked a lot of what they're doing, his playmaking ability. Well, there's two things here that, that for the league going forward. That you ha- you, it's, I still don't like small ball. It's skill ball. And you're, you've got to have passing bigs. And you're going to have to have a ball handling big. The <clears throat> you watch the other night Boston's playing Utah Boston hedges on every pick and roll which involving Isaiah Thomas which means they send the sec the the non Isaiah Thomas defender up high and hard on the ball to try to change the route it's somewhat of close to a double team if you release the pass fast enough it's basically a double team that pass has to go to a big the only way to take advantage of what is now a four on three circumstance is to make that pass. Derek Favors had a career-high six assists in that game. If you don't have a passing big to put in that circumstance, teams can do so many things to you defensively. It's, we see it endlessly with Steph Curry being double-teamed because you, you have to hedge or double Steph. He passes to Draymond, and now we have four on three with Harrison Barnes at one corner for a three and Clay Thompson with the other corner at the three and Andrew Bogut waiting for the lob and Draymond Green coming down the middle, and now you got to figure out what you're going to do, and you're dead. And, you know, Draymond's particularly special in that circumstance because he can not only shoot the three if he needs to, he can drive the basketball and he can pass. And there aren't many power forwards that can do that. But the, but the first thing you have to be able to do is be able to pass out of that or at least hit a short mid-range jumper to take advantage and eliminate that type of defense. 
Right, and I think Plumlee is less akin to Draymond Green because Draymond Green is so amazing at this and, like you said, can do so many things out of it. It's more akin, I think, to that Denver playoff series a couple years ago where Bogut was that guy, the facilitator, the release valve at the elbow, and Plumlee can do that same sort of thing as him. So the other aspect of the Blazers is if you are going to play small ball because of the fact that you're going to take your power forward off the court and put a wing there, you got to have enough wings to be able to do that. And Portland quietly loaded up on wings. They had they got a, they went out and got Amino. They got Gerald Henderson in the Batum trade, which you know at that point it just seemed like a, a contract to match. But he's actually been really terrific for them, and they held on to him for the stretch run instead of trading him. They also went out and picked up Mo Harkless for a top fifty-five protected pick. He's a guy who can slide down and play power forward, just like Amino. And then Alan Crabb, like we said, has uh, developed this year. So all of a sudden, they easily can go three wings on the floor with Lillard and Plumlee or and Davis at center. All right, let's. Uh, we probably haven't touched on the East at all, but just Miami and Chicago are kind of in disarray. Uh, Detroit makes all these moves. Any feeling on like who the two teams in the East that aren't going to make the playoffs are? I think Detroit got worse with their moves in the short term. If you're really going to miss Brandon Jennings as a backup point guard, Steve Blake's been much weaker than him so far this season. So as much as I liked what they did, and I think Tobias Harris is going to be a great value for him the rest of their contract, or for them the rest of his contract, I don't think they're there is likely to make the playoffs. And I liked what Charlotte did with getting Courtney Lee to replace Michael Kidd Gilchrist. So I, I would give them the edge. And I don't think Washington is going to be able to make up. I think they're too far back. Uh, speaking of the trade deadline, I, I thought what Detroit did was interesting to me because they had a clear organizational philosophy to what they were trying to do. They decided to not go into free agency in a city in which they now we'll see what happens with the Montaunas trade as we're sitting here. It seems to be on the way of heading the wrong direction. But at least it was clear. You saw them say, hey, we're going to use this opportunity rather than try to compete with 29 other teams and we don't have a market that's going to be able to pull free agents. I think we saw other teams that had uh, real clear philosophical approaches to the trade deadline. I also thought we saw a lot of teams that are just like, well, what can we do at this moment? And boy, if I was a fan in this league, regardless of whether my team made a move or not, I would like to believe they had some sort of philosophical approach that they were taking you know, into this that, that fits into some sort of plan rather than just a day by day, I got to do something, I pull something off kind of move because if one doesn't match the other, doesn't match the other, I frankly, where we start, I think you get unhappy teams. <laughs> Right, and you don't want to overreact to what's happened in the moment. That's, I think, the easiest thing when you work for a team. You get so close to it and so invested in the results that you get really down on your guys and forget about what you liked about them in the first place and then start moving them. And that's that's often the issue with coach GMs, I think, that the coaches are, you know, so their mood is so tied to the results that they want to change everything as soon as they're in a losing streak. And that becomes dangerous when you actually have the power to do it. And what I think has made Stan Van Gundy successful in that role is that he's resisted that temptation. They've, they have made a lot of moves ultimately, but it's been towards developing this young core that I think is going to have a chance to play together for a few years and get pretty good. What about Memphis? I liked what Memphis did. I think they made a really calculated look at their schedule. They have 10 games on their schedule. They have a win probability of 70 or more. If they win those 10, they're going to make the playoffs, and they're fine. And then they got assets for guys they weren't going to re-sign. I, those are the kind of things I like. i got to say, on the, on the Washington move for Markeith Morris, I, I, it doesn't seem to match anything else they've been doing as a franchise. Frankly, in the offseason, they didn't sign anyone because they were trying to keep cap space, and then they 
go add a salary and they give up a first-round draft pick. The Clippers move to me for Jeff Green seems, I mean, other than it's Doc Reunite, reu, you know, reunion tour, he and Journey and Foreigner and Arrows, you know, will all be playing <laughs> at the local casino next week. Um, but, I mean, I, I just, those are examples of, I think, going the other direction. Jeff Green will be playing the reunion tour with those guys, and people will still be like, oh, he's got potential. He's going to figure it out any day now. Yeah. What was the other team we were talking about here? Now, I made that joke, and I've lost That I team. just mentioned? Yeah. Memphis is, as a, pro, Memphis, as a yeah. positive, and then uh, critical of Washington and the Clippers. Oh, Washington. Yeah, I, I think that I, I think that their moves make more sense if you believe that they were being very conservative with their projection of the salary cap last summer, and that's why they didn't want to risk tying anything up. I mean, they did make Paul Pierce an offer that would have extended into 2016-17 and cut into their cap space. He just chose to go sign with the Doc Rivers reunion tour and, and join up and be uh, be the second lead singer. I don't know what, he, what his role is exactly, but background, background vocals. But uh, the... So they still have the chance to go out and sign a max free agent. And obviously, you know, they were at a point where if you don't make the playoffs, you're not going to be able to make an appealing pitch. So, you know, getting a guy on a reasonable contract who can fit into that playoff push, I think makes sense. It's just a question of whether, you know, Marquise Morris is going to be happier in Washington than he was in Phoenix. First round pick. Yeah, and a pretty good one, potentially, if they don't make the playoffs. I, I would have liked to see that protected a little heavier for sure. I also thought there was an interesting one. I'm not sure I love what Oklahoma City did. Um, and I understand it was to get under the luxury tax, but to that point, that doesn't seem to be that, – that seemed to be their pragmatic decision at the moment was luxury tax, not team building or philosophy. Yeah, I mean, that's it's tough to balance those goals because I think, you know, unless they were going to get a buyout type player, the the – the three and D type wings who are out there. A, I'm not sure that any of them are perfect fits for what they needed either. And B, they generally come with higher salaries. Yeah, who does Anthony Morrow play for? He'd be really yeah. oh. Well, I mean, <laughs> if, if you think that Foy is a defensive upgrade over Anthony Morrow, I mean, he probably is, but not as much as you'd hope. I mean, to me, the real issue remains you gave up two first-round picks last year in midseason trades for Waiters and Cantor and didn't solve that spot. That's the original sin here. That's a good point. All right, before we wrap up, uh, you referenced real plus minus inside of it. I, you and I were talking this week or this weekend. We spent enough time together. It felt like a week. I'm just kidding. Um, was that, you know, I kind of said something about box that, you know, hey, Naismith created a game. I, I think my line was that Naismith created a game that no matter how crappy you are, you get 90 points and 45 rebounds. So how the hell do you, how the heck do you figure out which of these matter? And you just kind of smugly <laughs> said back to me, real plus minus. So real plus minus is your, at the top right now, is your, your baby of kind of, of numeric stuff. Why? Well, you know, I think that I've always valued having the perspective of both the box score stats, which we know are stable and have a certain relationship, but are, as you said, I think they're incomplete. I think they, they can get you a lot of the way towards solving your problems because the re when there's a guy on a really bad team is just getting points because he's on a really bad team, it's probably because he's taking a lot of shots and he's probably not scoring very inefficient, very efficiently. But maybe he is doing all of that stuff and then also he's giving it up at the defensive end. And that's where we have a hard time with the traditional metrics evaluating it. Sport view has helped a little bit. Synergy has helped a little bit. But none of these are reliable defensive metrics. And that's why I think you need adjusted plus minus is this thing that comes out not knowing anything about the box score at the start and just taking into account how the team does with you on or off the floor in this completely separate perspective uh, on things, which is total in its scope, but also 
noisy because it's tough to figure out what player deserves credit for for what's happening with the team on the court. So real plus minus is in many ways a a merger of those two things because it's using the box score stats uh, is a prior to help set its expectations. You know, if these two guys are playing a lot together, how do we divvy up credit for it between them? Well, one way we can divvy it up if we don't have the opportunity to look at a lot of other lineups where they're playing just on their own is to start with the assumption that the guy who's got the good box score stats based on, you know, what we know about the relationship between box score stats and adjusted plus minus, assume that that guy is getting more credit than the other guy. All right, I'm going to delve into some, I'm going to try to poke holes in real plus minus in a minute, but if we go any further into it, we'll have people drive off the road. Who are the players that are better in real plus minus than people think of generally? So oftentimes it's guys who are really good shooters because of the way that they open up the floor for everyone else. Channing Fry is someone who got traded at the deadline is a good example of this. Two of the last three seasons, he's been an elite player by RPM. The only exception being 2014-15 when he was coming back from a sprained MCL. And this year, the Magic were by far the best they played with him on the court. Uh, Kelly Olenek would maybe be another example of a guy like that who's a big man shooter who spaces things. Kevin Love even, you know, a guy who's much maligned for what he's doing in Cleveland this year, but still creating a lot of space with his shooting. And then the other aspect of it would be guys who, you know, do the proverbial quote-unquote little things. The coaches' favorites who didn't necessarily have an opportunity to capture the ability to capture that statistically before we had some of these adjusted plus-minus stats. So, you know, Go back to back in the day, Shane Battier, who wrote about one of the, this this week uh, on the Players Tribune, and one of the guys he highlighted was another RPM favorite, Jay Crowder in Boston. What about Ricky Rubio? He can't shoot at all. He's the exact opposite of what you just told me <laughs> of guys that should be able to be a good real plus minus, and he's a good real plus minus guy. Yeah, been, the Timberwolves have always played well with him on the court. This year, they're outscoring opponents with him on the court. The reason they're struggling is because they get killed anytime he's on the bench. Uh, in his case, specifically with the shooting, I think shooting is less important. This is my concept of gravity again, as we've talked about many times, I think, on this podcast. Each player and the ball has gravity. So if you're a player who doesn't have gravity as a shooter on your own, if you have the ball, that has inherent gravity, and that makes up for the fact that you don't because of your shooting. This is the Eric Spolster brilliance of putting the ball in Dwayne Wade's hands all the time during the NBA Finals because he doesn't have gravity as a shooter. And... Uh, I don't know. Should I make the WNBA analogy? Sure. That's, we've already lost everyone at this point. So Sue Bird and Tanisha Wright played together for the Storm. Oh, you've lost everybody now. Sue Bird was the better playmaker of those two players. But she, but Tanisha wasn't that much worse, and she was a much worse shooter than Sue. So in the end of games, what the Storm's coach Brian Egler would do when those two players played together is he would put the ball in Tanisha's hands even though she wasn't the best option because having Sue in the corner forced the defender to stay with her and created the opportunity to play in a more open court for Tanisha. It was better for the team, even though it wasn't the best individual. There's like an economics theory behind this, but we've already gone way too far. Right, if I have a player who's playing mostly bench minutes against lesser players and having success, does real plus minus tell me whether he can be a starter? Well, one of the factors that's controlled for is the opponent lineups. So that is a factor that's in there. I mean, for the most part, I'm a pretty big believer that that is not a major factor. I think there are some exceptions. Uh, Seth Partner has done some good research on nylon calculus this year about how effective big men can be scoring on second units. Like guys like Julio Okafor in the post just destroy second units when they struggle against first unit centers, first team centers a little bit more. But for the most part, I think it is transferable. 
All right, you've got like three minutes to answer this next two questions. Okay. Does Hack-A-Shack work? <laughs> See, that's that's way too long of an answer to deliver in three minutes. Uh, my answer would be that it works against a few guys, and then it works depending on the situation. How much does it work based on the team? So I'm coming from Utah. It's the 30th paced play of team in the NBA. We don't fast break anyway. Shouldn't we play Hack-A-Shack all the time? Because we work it into the bottom seven seconds of the shot clock anyway. And one of the things that's not talked about about Hack-A-Shack is you're forcing yourself into a half-court possession on the other side without any chance for transition. I actually think that part of it is a little bit overrated based on my research. Interesting. A little nugget. Read Kevin Pelton and follow at K Pelton for more details. Should Hackershack be taken out of the game? Yeah, it's not basketball. You know, I have the bathroom theory. What, that people go to the bathroom when people. If there's something in a sporting event which is based on entertainment where you get up to go to the bathroom, it should be taken out. The designated hitter should move to the National League mm-hmm. because you go to the bathroom when the pitcher hits. So the, if they are playing hack-a-shack, you get up to fill up your chip bowl or go to the bathroom, then it should be taken out of the game. Yeah, and I mean, I think just from a more philosophical level, I, I don't think teams should generally be able to benefit from fouling. I would love to see it that you couldn't foul up three in that scenario. I mean, it's that's harder to take out of the game because now you have to get into intentional fouls. Uh, Adam Silver at his press conference at the... the uh, State of the Union kind of addressed the All-Star game last week in Toronto said, you know, there's been a lot more focus on whether we should get rid of this than how to do it. And uh, I, I think the solution is pretty simple. That you just make fouls away from the ball, give the option to decline those free throws if they're in the penalty, because that way there's no unintended consequences of this. It's still very hard. For example, uh, if I'm playing against a team that has a 50% free throw shooter and there's 36 seconds left in the clock and they're going for two for one, he touches the ball, I'm fouling it so I can do the two for one. And if there's under 24 seconds left in a quarter, I'm fouling that player every time he touches the ball because I want an, I'm getting an extra possession and it's worth it. And frankly, it's close to worth it even if he's not a bad free throw shooter. So there is a value. The analytics people have created enough knowledge in this game <laughs> that there is value to fouling and that's the problem and that won't go away and it's your fault. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I want—I mean, I want there to be more fouling now because it makes it kind of more embarrassing for the league and makes it harder for them to not do anything. But, uh, I mean, yes, that, it's not a complete solution, but I think it's the kind of solution that has the most chance of passing. Send tweets to Kevin Pelton and tell him it's his fault that he got Brainiac and everyone's gotten smart to figure out when to foul. And now they've ruined the game, those stat people. Yeah, it's at K Pelton. <laughs> 